So today I'm kind of on a mission. I want to make you feel feelings today. I want to make you feel uh, whimsical and maybe a little homesick for your home. Um, I think that's a good thing for us while we're here um, living in this earth, this reality that we're in, that we've got a little bit of homesickness as we walk around for where we truly belong. So that's my goal for today. And to do that, hopefully, I'm going to talk about um, the topic of exile. So exile, it's a theme that runs all through the entire story of the Bible. We've talked about some of these themes that our prominent biblical stories are involved in, like we talked about redemption. We've touched on the tree of life. There's a tree of life at the beginning of the Bible, and there's a tree of life at the end of the Bible. And that theme runs all the way through the entire story. So the Bible is loaded with all of these themes because we're meant to read them and to reread them, to meditate on this literature. It's full of wisdom that gives us all sorts of information about ourselves, our current condition, about God, about the way that we should live our lives. So just a simple definition of the word exile, because it's not a word that is part of our common vernacular. It just means the state of forced absence from one's country or home. That's what it means to be in exile, to be in a state of forced absence from your country or your home. So this is a biblical theme. Lots, most biblical themes begin at the beginning of the Bible. So much of that takes place right in Genesis. So we can see the first exile in the narrative here is in Genesis 3. So the Lord God sent him away from the Garden garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man out and stationed the cherubim and the flaming whirling sword east of the Garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the first exile. This is Adam and Eve being exiled from the presence of God from the garden. And uh, this is the exile of all of humanity. All of humanity is exiled from the kingdom of God. So Genesis 1 through 11 develops the story of the exile of humanity. This is kind of a, um, like a plot line of the Bible. You can see here. Is it the green button that's the laser pointer? Okay. It is. (laughs) Um, So, right here is where humanity is exiled from the garden and the presence of God. Right here. And then Genesis 1 through 11 develops the story of what is things, what are conditions for humanity going to look like now that they're in exile. That story develops. Cain is banished. That's another exile. After he murders his brother. We begin to see what is it going to look like for humanity to be apart from God doing their own thing. Then we have that crazy story about the sons of God coming to earth and taking the daughters of men for themselves. And then we see this increase in wickedness. And it's so drastic that God brings judgment. He brings the flood, right? And then Noah and his family are saved from that. They are stowed away in the ark. And God makes a covenant with Noah to bless him, to multiply him. So it looks like, all right, we've had this judgment. We're starting over. We've hit the reset button. And uh, it looks like we're back on track. God has made this covenant with Noah. But what happens then immediately after in the narrative, we have the story of Babylon. 
the building of the Tower of Babel. Instead of listening, the people again make their own choice to follow their own wisdom and to make a name, a great city for themselves instead of obeying what the Lord has told them to do. So there's another rebellion that happens. So at that point, God right here, another judgment comes and he scatters the people. He scatters them out. And out from that scattering comes Abraham, this man named Abraham. And, well, his name becomes Abraham. But um, him and his family are taken out of this dispersion. And we end up with a subplot here. So there's God and the nations, the exile of humanity. And that's one plot line. That's one problem that has to be solved. But then when Abraham comes out, we go down here. And we develop another storyline. And this is the majority of our Old Testament The story of God and Israel, that relationship, that covenant, and all of those different things that happens. So God is going to bless Abraham. He's going to bless his family. And if they are faithful to the terms of the covenant, they will then become the vehicle that restores God's blessing to all of humanity. That is the plan of this subplot down here that starts in Genesis 12. So that story of God and Israel, you can see it's depicted here. It's got these, it has high points where it looks like that exact thing is going to happen. Like Israel is going to be this vehicle that restores blessing to the nations. But a lot of it is the low points. A lot of it is the real downers where we just see the repeated failures over and over again. Remember, Israel itself was enmeshed in the human problem because they are humans. So they have these continual failures to uphold their end of the covenant and to be faithful to the covenant. So ultimately, both the nation's conflict up here and the Israel storyline, they both uh, have to be made right in one person, the person of Jesus. They're both headed to the same place. The gift of Jesus is offered to Jews and Gentiles, and he unites those that accept him in himself, and he reconciles them back to God. So you can see where they meet here in the gospel stories of Jesus. So the story of Israel, their successes and their failures and their exile, it maps right onto the exile of humanity. All of these stories of the ups and downs are things that we learn from, and they speak right into our spiritual reality, our cosmic exile as human beings. So much so that in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says, these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our instruction, on whom the ends of the ages have come. So whoever thinks he stands must be careful not to fall. Paul's telling us right here in 1 Corinthians, look at these stories. Look at these ups and downs. Look at the story of Israel's exile. There's going to be things in here for you to learn about yourself, about God, and about your current condition, and how you should live in light of that reality. If you've read any of the Old Testament, you'll know that exile, that theme, is a significant part of Israel's story. It serves as a metaphor for our cosmic exile, our journey as foreigners and sojourners here on earth. So much so that Peter even addresses a church as foreigners, exiles, sojourners. He says in 1 Peter, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, 
which wage war against your souls. So have you ever thought of yourself as having exile as part of your identity? Um, how does that affect you? What, what does that mean for you that you are a sojourner and an exile? That's an interesting thing for us to think about. So we'll just go, first of all, into a little bit of history. And I'll have to look at my notes a lot for this. Um, on the exile of Israel, because we're going to draw some things out from these stories. So just to look at a map to make it hopefully a little clearer, if you can see that. Um, the tribes of Israel divide after King Solomon. They were together, all 12, and then they divide. So 10 tribes are the northern kingdom, right up here. 10 tribes are up here in the northern kingdom. And in the word, they're often just called Israel. Sometimes they're referred to as Ephraim. And their capital is Samaria. And they're conquered and exiled up here in the 700s BC by Assyria. Assyria comes and carries off their people. And then down here, you have the kingdom of Judah. So the kingdom of Judah consists mostly of two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, and their capital is Jerusalem, the holy city where the temple is. And they are often just referred to as Judah. So they last a little bit longer than the kingdom of Israel, a couple hundred years, but ultimately they do not learn from the mistakes of their brothers in the north. Um, they are not faithful to the covenant, and they are conquered by Babylon. And, and they are actually exiled in a couple stages, um, a lot of places that when people are carried into exile and they're conquered, it happens in stages. The, the conquering country or kingdom will set up puppet kings and different things. So this happens in a couple stages, and but eventually Jerusalem and the temple that Solomon built, that awesome grand temple, are completely destroyed. They're totally leveled by the Babylonians. Now there's a major difference between the exiles of Israel in the north and the exiles of Judah in the south. The big difference between them is that Judah ends up getting royal permission from the king of Persia to return to come back from exile to Jerusalem. And this is where we get the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. They document this return of the exiles back to their land. So this was like the core of their identity. Um, Judah, to return to the place where their temple was, to return to this place of worship, was so core to who they were. They carried that with them while they were in exile. There's so much literature and writing in the Bible about people longing for Jerusalem. To see the walls and the gates of Jerusalem restored. It was core to who they were. That was their identity. So you would think, as they get this royal decree to return home, and they get to go back to Jerusalem, you would think, great. This is what everyone wants, right? So you're no longer in exile. You're home. This is your home. You get to come back. But we find when we read about it that it becomes this mixed bag of emotions and this mixed experience for the people that return to Jerusalem. So let's just take a look at that story here in Ezra chapter 3. But many of the older priests, Levites, and family heads who had seen the first temple wept loudly 
when they saw the foundation of this temple. But many others shouted joyfully. The people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shouting from that of the weeping. Because the people were shouting so loudly and the sound was heard far away. When I read this scripture, I just found it to be really interesting. A lot of times in biblical narrative, the writers just tell us what's happening. They don't make a pronouncement on any of the people. They don't say, and these people were doing it right, and these people were doing it wrong. It's just open-ended. So I'm like, what am I supposed to get from this? What is it that's happening here? As I meditated on this and prayed about it, I thought, wow, this is a really great picture of our experience as exiles here on earth. There's a lesson in here. The lesson is that being an exile is this bittersweet experience. It's something that we all live through. And um, we often say, and I know you've heard this because I've heard it many times before and I've said it myself. We often say that this earth is not my home. Heaven is my home. You know, I, I, this isn't my home. I don't belong here. And that's true. Okay, that is true. Your home is with the Father, is in the presence of God face to face. In the truest sense, that's your home. But there's also an interesting fact that happens here. At the same time, God created the earth. And then he made us to inhabit it. Like, he made this our home. He made it hospitable to us. He caused the land to come up out of the water, and he put us on it to inhabit it, and to rule and reign over it in partnership with him. If you think about it, we're carbon-based life forms. We're made from the same stuff as the earth. Like, we have so many similarities there. Uh, we're made from the same stuff. The earth is finely tuned to support our existence. Have you ever heard about like some of those books that talk about how perfectly tuned physics and all of the different laws of nature are so that we can even exist? And the chances of that just happening by chance are so, so small. So it's finely tuned for our survival. And on the physical plane, we literally can't exist anywhere else but on this rock that's up out of the water without some serious effort like scuba gear or a spacesuit, like it sure feels like this is my home because where else can I exist? So in one certain way, it is our home and it feels like it. But there's one really big caveat that's very important. It's not as it should be. Nothing here is as it should be. That's where we relate to the exiles that were at home, but home didn't fulfill them. Something wasn't right. It was just a shadow of its former glory. It was a shadow of what it was meant to be, and they knew it. And it broke their hearts, and they wept because of it. And we live on this earth here, and it is a shadow of what it was meant to be because it's full of corruption and decay, and it's affected by sin. So we have this experience, this strange state of feeling like we're suited for this place, but at the same time, everything is trying to kill us. Everything here is so dangerous. But at the same time, I feel like I'm suited for it, you know? Paul describes this feeling in Romans 7. 
He says this, so this is the principle I have discovered. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in my body, warring against the law of my mind and holding me captive to the law of sin that dwells within me. Paul is describing the experience of an exile. He is not even at home in his own body and mind. He can't even settle there. Even that is inhospitable to his existence. That is such a unique experience. Like the body of Christ is a really distinct people group. We experience this inhospitability. It's it's really incredible. So we have this experience that is bittersweet. We feel very much at home here, but we relate to those in the Ezra passage that weep because it's not as it should be. We weep at how how this earth is not as it should be. We're not fulfilled here. And we can even look at all of creation. Even the word says, um, look at creation around you. Look at all of this amazing stuff and you will know that I exist. God says that, but still it's just a shadow. And it's incredible, but it's not as it should be. So we're exiles. This is part of our identity. So if this isn't our home in the truest sense, or if our home isn't as it should be, then what is? So our home is God's kingdom in the fullness of new creation. Every word of that is important. Our home is God's kingdom in the fullness of new creation. That is what we wait for. And that is what we are longing for. I just want to juxtapose this with one thing I've heard a lot. So when we think about this earth isn't my home, heaven is my home. Okay. And I said that that, that's true. Of course, there's Christians that are going to die. They're going to pass away before the fulfillment of all things, before the end comes and everything is restored. Um, They die, they go to heaven, and we celebrate their lives and we rejoice in the fact that their suffering is over, especially depending, like, where they were at in life. You know, were they sick? Were they ready to be done? (laughs) Um, All those things. So, um, and I'm sure that we can all relate to that feeling of just wanting to be rid of suffering. It's all around us. We see it so frequently. We experience it ourselves. So I know from my own personal experience, that we can relate to just wanting to go be in heaven and be done with this earth. So that is a thing. But at at the same time, we're not instructed from the word to be praying for and longing for our own death. You know, we're not supposed to be like, just please take me out now because I want to be done. What we are instructed to long for is the full coming of God's kingdom. To pray for that, to say, come Lord Jesus, we want you to come and to make all things new. That's what we long for. And on the grand scale of God's plan from Genesis to Revelation, that is the end goal. That is the heart of God. To make all things as they should be, to wipe away every tear, for all things to be restored and made new. And I feel like in the truest and fullest sense, that is our home. That is our hope. Because it's about so much more than just me getting out of here. So I don't got to deal with any of this anymore. It's about so much more than just me. 
It's about all of us, and it's about all of creation as well. That's the fulfillment we long for as the body of Christ, as exiles in a corrupt and fallen world, because it is about so much more than just me. And Paul says it well when he talks about how it would be far better for him to leave this earth. He's like, hey, it'd be great. I'd love to go be with the Father, but I know the truth of the matter is I have to stay here because there's work for me to do. I have to stay here and declare that God's kingdom has come and that someday there will be a fullness of that coming. There will be a complete fulfillment. And the time in between there, when people can come into agreement with that and put their faith in Jesus and be saved, will come to an end. There will be a close on that time. And it's my job to stay here, even though it would be great for me to go away. I'm going to stay and declare that truth to everyone who's around me. And my life is going to be all about declaring that truth. To me, that sounds a lot like a sacrifice. Like he had a real grip on reality in its truest sense and his identity in its truest sense. He knew he needed to stay. It's about so much more than us. Romans 8 says that all of creation waits and groans. Creation itself awaits freedom from bondage to sin and decay. This is the fulfillment of all things, the end, like God's ultimate dream. And I don't want to like downplay how much he cares about you as individuals. I think that's true. But I also think that we often think in terms of individuals ourselves. It's just the way that we're geared because we're people and we're Americans and we're all these different things. And to put the focus back on God's eternal plan for all of creation and the entire body of Christ, um, the royal priesthood of believers ruling and reigning with him in new creation, I think that's really powerful. That adjusts our thinking from just us, me, and my salvation, and I'm out of here, peace and out, and like God's heart for everything. I think if we can think in those terms, it changes the way that we live our lives and the way we see other people and the things that God is doing. So I just wanted to read to you what that looks like because it's incredible. It's an incredible picture to think that you will see this If indeed you have put your faith in Jesus and you stand firm in that, that you will see this. You will see the plans, the dreams, the purposes of God come to pass. So Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and earth had passed away and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the former things have passed away. And the one seated on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. When I read that, I long for that. Like, I'm excited that I don't have to be afraid of death and that when I die, I know what's going to happen to me. I just do. And I have that assurance. But when I read this, it does something different to me. It's, it, it affects me in a different way when I think about the fulfillment of God's ultimate plan 
It's awesome. And the closing of Revelation, even further on from this, the word says, The spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And the one who desires the water of life drink freely. We are the bride. That is us. The spirit dwells inside of us. We are the living temple, the place of God's presence here on earth. We say that. We say that because it's what we long for. That is our home. That's our future, our hope of glory that we look forward to. That's our home. So that's how we relate as exiles to those that returned from captivity and they wept. But at the same time, I can see how we also relate to those who returned from captivity and they rejoiced loudly. This is our bittersweet bag that we experience as exiles here on earth. So we relate to those that returned to Jerusalem and they shouted for joy at the laying of the foundations of the new temple. They shouted for joy because it was a symbol of future glory. It was the embodiment of the hope that they knew that God would fulfill. It was the beginning of something so special. God's kingdom has come. Okay, new creation has begun. Hearts focused and fixed on his face and on the things above rather than the things below. Then we're able to see those things. Like if you have just this weighted down crummy perspective about everything, you won't see them and they'll happen right in front of you and you'll just miss it. But we see those things and we understand with great joy. We know it's just the beginning that there's a fulfillment coming, but we don't wait for revelation 21 to happen to live like new creation is happening because it is happening by the power of the Holy spirit. We live that out now and we become a declaration of what's to come. The fullness of those things, our state as exiles The reality we live in is a manifestation of the right now, not yet. That reality that we've talked so much about this year, it's really important just to review on that. So right here, like these are all the characteristics of this earth, this world that we know. Death, sin, suffering, violence, curse, all of those things. And then Jesus comes and he's resurrected. That takes place right in the enemy territory. New creation happens right there. And then the Holy Spirit comes and that just continues. Jesus is the first fruit. And there's going to be many, many more to come after him. So we're all made new. The Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of us and we're a new creation. And that takes place right here on earth. It's inaugurated, as some people say. So that's the right now is you living as a new creation by the power of the Holy Spirit running totally counter to the death and decay of this world. That's the right now. And at the same time, we have the not yet. We have all of these things that we live in increasingly because we're a new creation and that we experience increasingly because we're a new creation. But there's also going to be a fulfillment of those things when Jesus returns. At that point, it will be consummated. The now and the not yet. We live in this space right here, in this tension. It is such a unique place to be. It's really distinct 
the body of Christ, the experience that we have here on this earth is like nothing else. So as I thought about this, I'm, I, I'm like, what, what does that mean for us? So you are in exile. That's part of your identity. How do you live your life in light of that truth? I feel like there should be some sort of application I can make from this. But every time I try to make something specific, I just think, I don't want to do that because I feel like that's where legalism can come in. Because we're unified, we're united as the body of Christ, but we're not uniform. So I can't tell each and every one of you, this is what you should do. Because it's going to take a different manifestation in each of your lives. And it's your job to listen to the Holy Spirit and to read the word when you hear thoughts or truths that provoke you. To go to him and say, work this out in my life. Make me more like you. Show me what this looks like for me. Like, that's your job. I can't tell you specifically what to do. But I can give you some general things that um, I think apply to how we should live as exiles, as sojourners in this foreign land. It all has to do with how we wait. First of all, we have to wait with devotion. We have to wait with eager anticipation of his return. Hebrews 9.28 So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. To save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Titus 2 that I encounter in my life, my own moments of death to self, where the truth has been made plain to me. Sometimes I don't know the truth and I'm confused and I'm just wandering and stumbling around until God shows me. There are those times where I'm like, man, this thing in my life is wrong. Or like, I know I have to face this thing down. I just know it. And I think of Jesus setting his face like a flint for me. And I want to do that for him. Like, I want to set my face like a flint to submit to him, to do things his way. So we have to do that. We have to identify with him and his death. We set our faces. We have to wait in submission to him and to his purposes. Remember that word submission. We willingly place ourselves under him as opposed to exalting ourselves, which is the failure of humanity over and over again. We willingly submit to his wisdom, his ways, his plans and purposes instead of ourselves. We have the mind of Christ. The word says that about us. His plans should be our plans and his desires should be our desires increasingly. Um, Remember what insubordination can look like. And this story gives us a good picture. Luke 14, 18, it's just one verse. It says, A man was preparing a great banquet. When everything was ready, he said, Come, for everything is now ready. They made excuses. One bought a field and needed to see it. Another needed to try out oxen he had just purchased. They couldn't even outright reject the invitation. They couldn't even say, No, I don't want to. They had to make an excuse. Like, it's just kind of sleazy and pathetic. Like, I'm just going to go over here and do this thing because it's more important. The reality is they couldn't even reject the invitation outright. They made excuses because they just wanted to do something else more. And sometimes insubordination and not submitting 
is just that plain. Sometimes you just want to do something else more, and you got to tell yourself no. And that's just the way it is. Uh, the last thing I want to touch on, as we wait, we're being conformed to the character of Jesus. I'm always struck when I read in the Gospels that the things that Jesus did, it doesn't talk about how they required special ability or talent. It was all about character. Struck by the humility of Jesus, how humble and whose you are. Humility is so important to God that it is connected throughout the word with his favor, with exaltation, wisdom, and honor. It is huge in the word, so much so that it would probably be good if we could just do a study on the character of Jesus and some of those specific traits, and humility would be a huge part of that. The last one I want to touch on is to be steadfast. Jesus was steadfast, and we have to be conformed to that. When troubles arise for living according to the truth, we have to be steadfast like he was. Um, We don't want to compromise. That's not going to make it any better anyway. Um, So we have to be steadfast. He says that uh, the servant isn't greater than the master. If they hated me, they will hate you. That is just what it is. We have to have that steadfastness when we come up against that opposition for being conformed to the character of Jesus. Because it will happen. Probably increasingly. So that's all I have for today as far as teaching goes. And I thought about, been trying to think more about um, things to send home with you through the week. So like you could look at something and see a reminder and maybe do some some things during the week. So I didn't really come up with anything good because that's not my strength <laughs> or my strong point. But I did want to say, why don't you go ahead and read Revelation 21? And maybe even try to read it every day and meditate on it and think about that as your home and um, the fulfillment of all things. And think about that as what you're headed for and see how that changed your perspective on how you live your day-to-day life. Revelation 21. Let's pray. Lord, it is completely overwhelming to think of being part of your plan to think of the destiny and inheritance that you have given us. It is so special and so outrageous that the only response to it is to offer you all of ourselves. So we do just that, Lord. We offer you our entire lives, holding nothing back. It is all yours. It all belongs to you, Lord. We submit to you in every area of our lives. Ask you to have your way, to do your will in us in our church, in our families, in the world, Lord. I just pray that you would be more and more glorified, that we would see more of your glory in all of the world, that many, 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 many would come to know you, Lord. And I ask that you would help us to be a part of that, Lord. Make us the spring of life that brings water to those who are thirsty, Lord. We thank you for your power, And that you've given us the ability to participate in all of this with you. You are so awesome and you're so good to us. We thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.